Yep, I'm so, going. Three, two, two one. one. This is no good. Hey guys, welcome to. <laughs> There's just no way that that's an effective strategy. Like it's impossible. <laughs> I mean, I guess my whole thought on that is it's an a- attempt to give you an opportunity to find where everybody is. It's true, but I heard all three of us say those numbers at three different times, so. (laughs) You see, my problem was I was going, I was willing to account for latency and just power through, and then for some reason I changed, and I was like, I should follow Adam's voice. And then I was Mm. behind you guys. Yeah. So we're close enough. I think we know where we're no, starting. I just have to and we found some. I just have to like skip around good. and listen to conversations and make sure they sound natural. That's pretty much how I do it now. <laughs> I mean, that works too. Hey guys, thanks for stopping by our sets. We're joined by Livy. Hello. Adam. Hello. And I'm Seth. Today we're doing something a little different than we normally do. We're going to do something called Music Conspiracy Theories. But before we get into that, um, anybody got something to share about the week? If nobody minds, I'd like to share my personal adventure this week, which was uh, so that wasn't Sarah really. Does, that was a, I know that it wasn't was, really. It an was offer. an invitation. Yeah, that was more. I was inviting <laughs> myself to talk. Anybody else? I'll start. <laughs> I mean, it sounded so inviting, no, though. You it. were compelled. That that so, point four, like point four seconds of. of <laughs> space you know really gave you a window like, <laughs> like i could i could totally share something so sarah's a church pianist among other things let's go but she um she's been the choir director and church pianist for about a year at this little lutheran church that's near our apartment and so as the current state of things is a little odd um, which is dating this a little bit, but oh well. So anyways, I had the great idea of, you know, if we made a backing track, sent it to like four or five people in the choir, had them sing to it and record themselves, similar to what we're doing now, yes. that they could send me the recordings, I would put it in GarageBand, and I would have this masterpiece that we could like share on Sunday or, you know, one day and just be like, here's some uplifting music for the week and in these weird uncertain times right mm-hmm. it is a, a beautiful idea however the act of actually editing basically generally like the median age is 65 mm-hmm. of like 65 year olds voices to a backing track and like they were all very close because of the backing track but then the tenor in this situation, occasionally I would look at his and I would just see three blips when everybody else had two blips. And I was like, okay, either he's singing a rhythm that's wildly wrong or something else happened there. And so I would go like single him out. And then he would just say like the collection of words, but kind of in the wrong order. Like, just because he was trying to hit the note and sing it right at the same time and stumbled. And so there was a lot of laughs while trying to edit this and basically do what Adam's been doing so far of trying to cut out all those little things that aren't quite right. And I have to imagine it's so much easier with just dialogue than it is with music. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many more things you have to account for with music. Basically, I threw out pitch 
on <laughs> generally generally they're not bad especially since right. they had the backing track and they had like Sarah playing piano of like here's where this note is so they got to practice to it mm-hmm. but then there was some tracks might be behind at some points but not always and then sometimes you might speed them up so it it, <laughs> it was like going through and all the parts got cut up a bunch and basically i had to sit with the score and try to figure out where is this beat actually supposed to happen <laughs> and just line everybody up yeah but then the other challenge the score had three different bars of two four mm-hmm. plus ends with a retard so the beginning wasn't awful because i said okay there's one two four bar and garage band you can set it to like beats of time so i put it at 70 i set it for four four and i just scooted the track started at two beats late mm-hmm. so i was off for a little bit and then it was right but then after the next two four bar then three becomes one and so anytime i had mm. to calculate and for some reason the song had a bunch of it would have measures of just syncopated offbeats where it was like and 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 one it was like oh, gosh. oh goodness this is quiet but not more than Which, i can chew <laughs> i mean after about three hours of editing i got it to where it needed to be but it was trying just throwing them in there and hoping it was close enough it was so funny and sarah was to the point of like we we just have to give up (laughs) and i was just like no just give me time i'm pretty sure i can go in and fix it and also s is the worst syllable yes like Mm -hmm. because because i would have all four of the people singing put their s at a different time Mm -hmm. oh (laughs) and then the problem was some s's were more egregious than other s's Mm-hmm. And so it was like, I need the softest one, but then not everybody, like some people are holding past that. So then it sounds like they just cut off. And it was like, okay, it just, it sounds cut off, but I don't know what to do. I'm not going to ask anybody to re-record. Mm-hmm. When I sang in choir in college, our choir director, if the song ended like on an S, he would tell us to not sing it. Yeah, no, that's and the he, right call. He said, somebody's going to forget, and then it'll sound fine. <laughs> but if everyone does it, it'll sound terrible. If two people do it, it'll be fine. Mm. Yes. It, that's why Slytherin is the worst house. <laughs> okay. And I'm allowed to say it because I'm dating a Slytherin. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's how it works. Um, Because you, you could expand that argument to a lot more controversial issues. <laughs> but, but I'm not. I'm, yeah. this, this argument is contained it's only a slippery this. slope if you're slipping exactly <laughs> it's it's like a, the bowling alley like if you walk on the very front part you're fine but if you keep walking down it then you're going to be in trouble and can't turn around I've just mm-hmm. barely taken the first step on it gotcha so what have you guys been up to I had big news also oh no, well, I mean, it's notable for me. Also, in, in these weird times, you know, anything mildly notable is interesting. Um, 
longtime fans will remember that there was a specific brand of hummus that I really enjoyed that I was very passionate about. <laughs> as a longtime fan, I did listen to that episode recently as I was trying to remember all the, the magic yeah. things that we yeah <laughs> really dive into what this podcast what's the essence of what we do get into the lore <laughs> <laughs> well this week the lore uh, the lore expanded because i have not seen this brand of hummus in probably two years did i talk about on that episode that i was having difficulty acquiring it or no yes the a walmart was out of it and then you said you know were like i was very upset it was gone for like three weeks or something uh-huh. and then you found it again so you bought a ridiculous amount and i think that was the last time i ever had it to be honest i i think that it never showed up again i even went to their website and it just said out of stock like it had been discontinued nobody had it well this week uh, i needed uh, to go pick up i something. mean avocados haven't been in style in years adam We've been using them. We've been expand, expending all our avocados on toast and not on hummus. Yeah. So this well, week, not your generation. I think my generation. I I'm mean, like, aren't you a Z? No, I'm like the last of the millennials. Come on. <laughs> my sister's definitely I'm sure that's, a Z. That's what any generation Z would say is, no, I'm the last millennial. Adam and I are like on the cusp. It depends on what source you look at. Also, generations like generational theory she's bunk anyway and it's kind of dumb but wow i agree i agree i think that people are people i think if you go through and look at history so i've been watching old seasons of survivor that's how i've been spending more my downtime i mean yes adam and we're coming back to that but i want you to know if you take that kind of attitude this episode is not going to be as interesting as i want it to be well i'll see you better start declarative that's how you need to be i'll i'll Hmm. I'll spice it up but <clears throat> I've okay. been watching old seasons of Survivor, like the ones that came out 20 years ago. I decided to just start at the beginning and see how far I can make it. It's one of my favorite shows. Where are okay. you watching this? They're all on Hulu. Really? All seasons 1 through 34 are on Hulu. Oh, They're missing my 35 through 39, but the one that's coming on right now, 40, which is all winners, <laughs> um, it's, it's on Hulu, too. Whoa. That's anyway, so much content. Yeah, I started way back. And I think I'm in season three. They're in Africa. And it is hilarious to me because all of the old, older people on the tribes are complaining that Generation X just sits around and doesn't want to work. And they're also lazy and entitled. And it was just like, it was giving me life because I don't, I don't think that generations are as big a deal as people say they are because people fall into so many cracks. I think that human nature has been the same for forever. So the idea that like people could be radically different just because they were born 25 years later, I understand there's social and cultural aspects to it that shift over time, but if you look at it, pretty much every old person has always thought that young people were lazy and entitled. And I just like I felt confirmation of that watching this old season of Survivor where the baby boomers were dunking on Generation X 20 years ago. Yeah, that's funny. I, I cannot wait to get to the first question of con- conspiracy theories okay um really forcing theory in the middle of that word you are it's a it's a reach <laughs> anyway I point you ever my... finished talking about your hummus yeah point being i had to go to the grocery store the other day because walmart shorted me an onion in my pickup <gasps> i was gonna make chili and i was so excited so anyway i yeah. went to corner market which i never go to but i figured it would be smaller and cleaner than walmart so i trusted it more right now yeah. um and as i was leaving with my onion 
I saw out of the corner of my eye the lost love of my life. In corner market. Spicy avocado hummus. And I bought it, and it was way more expensive than I remembered it being. <laughs> and I've already eaten all of <laughs> well, it. But it was good. I say, it was well, cool. at corner market, that could just be because you bought it there. It's true. They also, it used to come in like yeah. a 16-ounce pack, and this came, I had to buy like two 8-ounce packs, and so Ooh. that made it more expensive too. But <laughs> I ate all of it. I was going to say, are you sure the two things that you bought weren't the reason it got more expensive? Well, I bought the same amount, but it was like twice as much price. Well, yeah, because you have to pay for the packaging. No, I know, I know how money works. Packaging. <laughs> Do you know how money works? They didn't have the bigger container. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, I was, and I was just so ecstatic. You know, I would have sold my firstborn for this. It's been so long. <laughs> I think legitimately two to three, two and a half years since I've had it. Seen and it, it was anyway. as good as you remember. Oh, it was fantastic! It was unbelievable. So that's very. Exciting. Or, better question. Is that the sign that, you know, there's approval in these dark times of we should be podcasting? Yeah, probably. The return of the podcast and the return of the hummus did coincide. (laughs) Yeah, very true. Which is going to be episode 12 of the Star Wars series. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it'll be Palpatine (laughs) comes back yet again to steal hummus from some, you know, Generation Z character. I see. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I forgot that that hummus has like three times your daily servings of fiber in it, and so that's been an issue mm. for me. But worth it. All worth it. <laughs> I mean, well, at least you're at home. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was <laughs> If there was any time to overconsume, this is it. I have, And you know what? We made fun of everybody's been making fun of people who did a toilet paper rush, but I needed it this week. <laughs> so you I'm, see, but it's I, really all falling together for you. It Adam. is. It's the best week of my life. <laughs> Adam, I just want to throw this out there. Like, flushable wipes, I think, is the direction you need to go. No, those are bad. They clog up the Why are the those pipes bad? Stuff. You're not really supposed but, to flush those, even though they say flushable. Oh, yeah. It's oh, a lie. It's they all lie, wrong. yeah. Our, the oh, U.S. plumbing I'm, system I'm is learning. not actually yeah. equipped to handle those. They don't break down, it's, so they become like it's just a big ball of mushy... Yeah, if you ever want to see something horrifying, some city put out, like, a video of, like, there was, like, a wall of just garbage clogging up the sewer and, like, half of its wipes. And they, like, took a video of it. It's horrifying. Yep. (laughs) It is horrifying. Hattiesburg already has enough of a sewage problem that I don't need to be making it any worse by introducing flushable wipes to this environment. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. (laughs) I, Maybe you've I been away long I enough remember, to forget. No, I was going to say, I do think I remember walking through campus and occasionally being like, you know, something's going on with the sewers today because the air smells Just those a warm different. summer mornings. It just smells like butt outside every day. <laughs> that, the complex yeah. that Adam and I both lived in for a time, that was a very common occurrence. Yep. Yeah, it happens a lot over there. <laughs> all right, we ready for music conspiracy theories? Yeah, this is, uh, all right. Yeah, I guess so. This is a new segment okay. Seth has just completely come up with, and we don't actually really understand it thoroughly yet. So we're going to see where it takes us. <laughs> so, Adam, I, I think unfortunately will have the upper hand in our first round because mm-hmm. he has been more present in internet discussions of music theory, and therefore is almost the most qualified for this. Which is a sad so, qualification to have. 
So Livy is in fact the contender, um, okay. but I believe in her. You okay. know, Adam may be the ringer, but Livy's a contender. So the way it's going to work, I have nine questions. We may not get to all nine questions. Who knows how long this takes? We may do five, but we're going to do an odd number because I'm the one who doesn't understand. I was searching the internet. I found a music theory question and I need to know more. I need to make a decision about something, but I have to have Livy and Adam's help. One is going to choose one direction with the question, and the other will pick a different direction. And I'll ultimately decide which made the more convincing argument. Okay. You got it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So first question. Claudio Monteverdi. Giovanni Artuzzi. Second practice? First practice. Break the rules when needed. Follow the rules. Who was right? Oh. Um, I'm trying to think back to... Remember who those people are. I remember who they are, but I don't remember the details. Wasn't it that they were, like, fighting in, like, public speeches or something? Or, like, public... They they, they were writing letters to each other. As, as I understand okay. from the little that I know. But you two are here to educate me. Yeah. Monteverdi is the second practice one, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Generally, what I understand is he said, break the rules when needed. Yeah, Monteverdi was saying dissonance for the sake of yeah, expression. he's the guy who started adding all the dissonance in the and, Baroque era. Him and that other guy. Yeah, Artuzzi was the one who was saying prima pratica, but wasn't that in the style of Palestrina? Or am I mixing stuff up at this point? I, I mean... I think it was in the style of Palestrina. Or no. Now I can't remember. I mean, yes. Also, I would say generally, you don't have to think of this question in the sense of the beginning of the Baroque era. Yeah. You could think of it as today. A gateway. You could you could use examples at any point in time. We're just so much more flexible now, though. It's much less of a scandal. Is there like an analogous yeah. situation now? Like, what would we consider our rules to be? What would we break? Like... Uh country music making a good song that would be one <laughs> i mean like it's not super current but a more modern situation was like um free jazz being a thing like um, when dylan went electric he's not supposed to do that mm, that is also a good modern one i'm trying to all, think of like, like a really recent example after that so Ooh, what if we said kendrick lamar winning the pulitzer Breaking all the rules. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't. It's not a pool I want to swim in today. Well, but we've already discussed that. Livy, are you on team? Are you on team break rules? Um. Or are you I'm on team be, follow rules? I think I can argue team follow rules. I could do either, but I think I've just come up with a reason to follow the rules. Oh, okay. Then I'll be break the rules. Yeah, that seems more your lane, Adam. Yeah, that was, was going to work better for me. Yeah, because, and I gathered that, because as I was trying to establish the rules, Adam was attempting to break the rules of, I don't know if we need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I, my, my position is a little bit more nuanced than just straight up follow the rules, but I guess my position is we should stress the importance of rules, and I'm coming just from a music theory perspective here, not like all composition or all performance, but music theory. I think the rules are very important, 
and I guess my position is, you have to have mastered the rules before you can go breaking them and expect like positive results. Is what I'm saying. That's okay, my position. Okay. Yeah, that's Adam what I tell my bottle? classes. I disagree. <laughs> Fight you me. Nailed it. You Fight me. me. <laughs> I think it's like Outback Steakhouse out here. No rules, just right. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize that you're going to go that liberal with your response. Well, okay. I think teaching music theory in a Western classical, in the very limited Western classical sense that we do, then rules are important. Yes. I won. He conceded. No. (laughs) Well, that was the point I was making. I'm putting yours in a small box so I can have the rest of the playground. Okay, Adam, fine. you went so quickly from I disagree to <laughs> well, her premise is correct. But in a like no, in no, a functional okay. in a functional sense for musicians broadly, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You see, I, like I told like Debussy, got on attitude. Debussy was at like the French Conservatory, and he got dunked on by all his composition teachers because he wasn't doing it the way he was supposed to. But and I think that kind of worked out for him. Do you think it's true? Do you think it's true that people who become known for breaking the rules have generally mastered those rules? They just choose to? Don't you think they've usually made a choice? Um, I'm thinking yeah. more of like I mean, well-known composers, limited, maybe. With like limited examples from like outsider art, then yes. Yeah, so I'm thinking I'm still in like the Western music wheelhouse, and I think like a lot of composers that we know and reference even if they are the ones who were coming up with these new techniques that were against the rules at the time, they were very well versed in the rules. Like people always reference like so-and-so studied Bach and then from there, you know? Like they Mm -hmm. learned the strict counterpoint and then they went from there. And I guess I'm just thinking about it more broadly than than Western art music. Yeah, I I think if you go broad, then- It's it's a really vague question. If you go broad, like- Yeah. I'm trying to think, I don't know why I thought of Mumford and Sons, but like, Mumford and Sons did one thing really, really well. And then they mm-hmm. made a second album where they did that same thing over again, totally fine. They did it again really, really well, but people were tired of it because it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. Then they had like a third album where they tried to break the rules and move out of their niche, but really they just dropped everything that made them interesting. They, they just mm. sounded like a normal rock band. We might have talked about this. Yeah. I really can't remember. Um, like on their third album, they just got rid of all the banjos and stuff and like no mandolins. And then it was just normal. And that was a case where, like, they broke their rules, and they weren't, like, this folky band anymore, but they didn't actually do anything with it, and they went to, a, like, a mm-hmm. more traditional place, and that was less interesting. I feel like if they had broken the rules more wildly and become, like, a jazz fusion folk band, that would have been way more interesting. Maybe not good, but way more interesting than what actually turned out. Hmm. I don't know whose side that really proves, though. I don't either. Because in their case, they maybe should have stuck the rules. Maybe it's that you need, like if we combine western music with more modern it's like you need a really you need to have conviction if you're going to break the rules hang on like i have a great stravinsky quote oh stravinsky king of breaking rules incorrect big fan of rules didn't he kind of come up with his own rules though those rotational arrays no one that was no one else's rule that's true but he like okay yeah. so he liked boundaries it's not so much he liked rules he liked boundaries okay that's fair feel like boundaries is just a different name for rules. It's just rules <laughs> with extra steps. <laughs> so what's his quote? 
I'm trying to find it. I mean, Ooh, I am yeah. counting this against you. I, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I don't know what I want. <laughs> that sounds like a rule breaker. You see, people of rules understand what they want, and they get it. I, st- I, still think, I still think the biggest issue is that Livy and I are talking about two different things. Where she's being way more narrow and I'm being way more broad with it. Well, yeah, somebody who's not defending their point well would be more broad. <laughs> I mean, the quote says that within rules we find freedom. Does that work for me on the freedom side? No. Are you sure? <laughs> That's he pro led with, rules. Within rules. All right, hang on. I threw the book away. I don't have the quote anymore. Oops. <laughs> I'll read it anyway. Yeah, so, this is going to be the rule breaking of the our sats podcast where someone besides adam has to edit this episode so that it appears impartial some, yeah. <laughs> so it's just after like round one super obvious cuts wow adam's right <laughs> see it would be even better if instead of that if you inserted yourself and like hey for some reason seth's mic wasn't picking up well but I just wanted to insert myself here <laughs> saying that I got this point. We all agree that I crushed it. <laughs> but anyways, round one. Livy, one. Okay, can I read the Stravinsky yes. quote, though? Yes, you can read me more Stravinsky. You can read your that, That'll never speech. be a problem on the podcast. Um, okay. He wrote this, I don't know when. It doesn't matter. The creator's function is to sift the elements he receives from the imagination, for human activity must impose limits upon itself. The more art is controlled, limited, worked over, the more it is free. I shall go even further. My freedom will be so much the greater and more meaningful the more narrowly I limit my field of action and the more I surround myself with obstacles. Whatever diminishes constraint diminishes strength. The more constraints one imposes, the more one frees oneself of the chains that shackle the spirit. So I guess I lose. Yeah, you should have read that at the beginning and just proven my point for me. Yeah. That's a great quote for but me. That's different, but that's different than like doing something unexpected or defying expectations. When we talk about, when we talk about like Monteverdi, he was doing things that, quote, weren't allowed. That's different mm-hmm. than working within a strict set of guidelines for himself. Yeah. Stravinsky did break the rules in which he wrote atonal and serial music that was unlike anything else that those other guys were doing because he came up with his own system for it and then he adhered to that system without any deviation without any cheating because he believed mm. in the boundaries of the system okay you're right it's a small difference so maybe it doesn't prove my point but still if taken out of context it sounds really good yes for my it point. does yeah. And Adam did take it out of context, so I'm still pro Livy on this one. I, I don't think I. Okay, well. I think I put it back in context just now. Thank you very much. Now I'm choosing not to accept it. I had already rendered a verdict, right? I yeah. I mean, yeah. if I'm researching okay, on the internet, stand, yeah, don't Lily's I just stand stop when I find the decisions now? Of course. <laughs> She's going to ask for an extension on the next one when I crush her. Adam will insert himself saying, you see, Seth's going to award a point here, but he will go back and correct it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, round two. I guess we'll go ahead and determine because I still think that last one was like, I don't know. (laughs) 
We were ta- we were talking about two different things. I don't think it's really fair. <laughs> okay, if you don't want to talk about the subject, that's your problem. But I, don't think that's I will let either. it. All right, it's fine. So Adam, you will get the more straightforward as you believe it part of this question. Livy, you get to defend the more. Oh, not necessarily ridiculous, but the harder to defend side. Okay. So, I've been researching on the internet German augmented six. Mm-hmm. Do they even really exist? Isn't it just a secondary dominant that doesn't follow the rules? Uh. Wait. So my okay, position what are is our yes. Sides? Adam, your position is, is that they yes. Exist. They they exist. Okay. Livy's position is, no, it's just a secondary dominant breaking a bunch of rules. Well, since we already uh, we already pretty solidified the importance of rules. Mm-hmm. Per our Stravinsky quote. Right. Adam, is that the position you would normally choose? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. This is not the one <laughs> I would usually choose. <laughs> I read well, about them in a book, that... so they must be real. Costco Payne told me they were real. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. Clendenning told me that they were real, but... <laughs> Has anyone told us that they're not real besides, like, Dr. Brumbelow in Romantic Glass? So, my question is, like, at some point in Romantic, they started following the 5-7 rules again and just mm-hmm. went to where that dominant 7 was supposed to go. Mm-hmm. So, I... I mean, I mean, isn't it well, isn't it just point, breaking the rules originally? <laughs> right. So I'm. I don't think it was ever an augmented six. I think it was just a secondary dominant, and they said, "Well, eventually we're going to end up at five seven. We'll just go straight there and skip over the stuff in the middle." So I guess I don't. Okay, I don't have answers to these questions, but if I was trying to prove my position that they don't really exist, I would start by saying. To Adam, I would say, like, well, who decided an augmented six is an augmented six and not just a five seven? Because five sevens must have been around first. Um, I'm standing over my keyboard looking at an augmented six just to remember <laughs> what they look like. Um, I mean, and specifically, I'm interested in the German augmented six. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, that just one. Just to clarify, that one. both for Adam and the listener at home. I mean, I think, yeah, I think you got to stand by an augmented six because it's a weird combination of chords. The German one definitely makes more sense with the position that it's really just a secondary dominant. The other ones are quality. Well, it's the same notes. Yeah, but missing one. And when you're missing a note, it makes a big deal. Are you missing a note? From an Italian to a German? Yeah. No, I, I was talking about the German. Well, then say German when you ask the question. I did say German augmented six. <laughs> yeah. Your microphone, you're like, sometimes you cut out a little bit. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I will I restate it. it. German augmented six, does it really exist? Oh, uh, okay. Well, or is it just a five seven that isn't following the rules? I think it's a lineage question at that point. Is it? I feel like we need some history on it. That's just where my mind goes. Right. But to prove my point, which is that they don't exist, I'm going to say, I'm just going to put a an imaginary situation out there. So someone's sitting down, they're at the keyboard. And like Adam is. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they have written a. F- they're used to hearing five sevens, but to go back to our previous question, they're breaking the rules, and so they have this five seven sound in their ear. So they go to that, but then they're like, "Oh, I'm not gonna take it back to one. I'm gonna do something crazy. I'm not gonna take the seven down. I'm gonna take it up, and it's gonna blow people's minds." And so then later on that was just they were doing it by ear but then someone got down on the paper and they were like what if we rewrote it so that it doesn't look like we're breaking rules we're going to rewrite it so it's an augmented six instead of a minor seventh and then we have a whole new thing where we create our own rules just like stravinsky boom that's my point (laughs) my question would be which came first the italian augmented six or the german augmented six because e, if the German mm. augmented six came first, then yes, I would probably agree that it's a dominant harmony that is doing something funky. And then like we like, you know, backwards engineered, reverse engineered an mm-hmm. Italian sixth. If we have evidence of an Italian six showing up first, I would say that the German augmented six builds off of that idea more than it does just a, a specific dominant harmony. And I don't know. Interesting. I mean, fair, but I would I would argue that you're not arguing like you would in the Reddit comments. If it was the Reddit <laughs> comments, you would just say this is what it is. I mean, I just don't know. If I wasn't being playing a game show right now, I would be looking it up and researching and then slapping some people down with actual knowledge. But I'm I not mean, gonna do I that. I do appreciate you, you know, being honest and following the rules. Yeah, exactly. So, Adam, Adam, what's your imagined scenario where they did come up with it as an augmented six that resolves as an augmented six does like who Um, where what do you what do you imagine well obviously the italians okay Uh, no probably not i don't know (laughs) um you just imagine italian people (laughs) yes i mean i think they i don't don't know i wasn't there i imagine they put together these two (laughs) tendency tones that open out to an octave and they're like "Eh, that's pretty Mm -hmm. cool and then they probably tried to fill it in with something as consonant as they could get it. I'm not really sure, because it's not mm-hmm. really a chord. It's more like an idea with extra notes. Okay, so here's what I think. They came across this sound that they liked, and then the reason that they wrote it as an augmented six is because they realized they were breaking the rules, which kind of proves my point, which is they were like, oh, shoot, we actually wrote a 5-7, and we didn't mean to. Even if it was not filled in all the way, they were like, that's a minor seventh, which we all know where that should go. So we're going to have to rewrite this in a silly way. But I think the other thing you have to think about, oh, I'm still thinking of my keyboard. I, I, while he's thinking, I do hope that in future theory classes that I teach that students ask, you want us to write that in the silly way or the normal five, seven <laughs> way? There you go. <laughs> well, to call any interval that could be major, minor, augmented or diminished is pretty silly. Oh, like calling a major second a diminished third like that's silly it is yeah yeah sarah was doing some homework the other day um on and it was uh was she doing the whole tone scale or the octatonic or was it the pentatonic scale basically one of them there i think it was the whole tone there was something somewhere where she was calling it a third but really it was just or she was calling it a second, but really it was a third. And, and augmented second was a minor third or something. Yeah, and I was like, what a, why are we doing this? Yeah. 
Just call it this. <laughs> I will say, I think the the only thing about the dominant thing is that it's like not going to a closely related key. It's a pretty wild mm-hmm. key association to make, um, which I know they're more open to in the romantic period. But I think you already have to be playing pretty fast and loose with your key cycles if you're going to say that it's a 5-7 that came first. So remind me, typically when it's called a German, we see that as a dominant approach right within the same key yes it's a yeah it's a dominant preparatory harmony so it's going to five in the same key generally speaking yes so if we're calling it a five seven it's a secondary dominant of the dominant right no because it's not five of the next chord no it's not gosh darn it (laughs) (laughs) see that's what i'm saying it doesn't actually do that it'd be a five seven whatever key it's in is a five seven it's like a immediate it, it, relationship. It's something like that. Oh, I mean, like you wouldn't write it as a five seven either way, because it's not functioning as five. If we're in the key, key of C, we're our dominant is going to be a G chord, mm-hmm. and we're going to have A flat, C, F sharp, and then maybe an E flat. We're feeling like it. That's an A flat dominant seven. I, I would argue that you need the E flat to make it a German. It would be like a German argument? that way. It would be an Italian without the E flat. Right, that's what I'm yes. saying. We, have to, we include yeah. that one. But an A flat dominant doesn't go to a G dominant. Unless it's a German. Right, but I'm saying that in that right. sense, it's not really a dominant harmony. Yeah, if, if we called that a 5-7, it would be 5-7 in the key of D like flat. D flat, yeah. When it then goes to G. But so what I so that's like a tritone said, relationship so almost. I was gonna say I agree it's not functioning as a five seven traditionally. But my original point was that they decided they wanted that sound, and then they were like, "But I'm gonna do something crazy," and so that's why they rewrote it. I agree either way that they're doing something crazy, but I bet they had it in their ears that it was a five seven sound, and they were just like, "We can't have it as a five seven not going where it's supposed to," so we have to rewrite it. I think it's not still. <laughs> There we go. We've made our points. All right. This round is going to go to Adam. Hey, he he took fine. a little long to he took a little long to get there, but I was willing to hear him out once he got there. That's fine. But Livy, I will say the the argument of it's just a silly 5/7 and they wrote it a silly way was convincing for the most part and had Adam not made a late push you would have gotten point number two. It was a close oh, one. Thank you. Okay, well, after two like rounds. I feel like I needed historical background, but instead I just went pure imaginary scenarios. So but you I'll, see, I I'll almost, accept the loss. As learning my music theory through the internet, I almost preferred <laughs> the imagined scenario. I, I was willing to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you were willing to believe the first person who sounded like they were making any sense, even if they weren't. <laughs> Adam, I don't know what you're suggesting. I don't know what you're suggesting. It's the Reddit way. And to be fair, I told you to declare your points early on. <laughs> I didn't have a point until right. right there at the end, so. <laughs> Round three. What is most important in Shankarian analysis? Ugh. The foreground, the middle ground, or the background? Ooh, can I pick my stance? I mean, there's three, yeah. Feel free Go to fight for, for any. Background. Background is my stance. Middle ground. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel like middle ground is the hardest one to defend. Really? I, I, can't be- I can't believe that Adam would 
so cavalierly laugh at you like that, Livy. We're, we're debating which one is the most important, right? Yeah. Okay, so can I just... Let me <laughs> just... the least important? Let me just describe why I would never defend the middle ground. Oh, oh, and it is I because... It is because when we learned Shankarian analysis, which I came away knowing well enough to include in my thesis, so I'm not shaming the class, the thing that made gave me like anxiety about that class was that there was no consistency in what went in the middle ground. Hey, let's there just pull was up everybody's grades zero in that class consistency. Okay, we can. <laughs> <laughs> I think I lose that battle. I think I, I really think I do. No, but so like. We could, so we went through these stages of like rhythmic reduction and then da 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 da. Well, so then we got to the point of like write a rhythmic reduction and write a middle ground and this stuff. And I was trying to reduce it down to middly important notes. I'll use that term, like notes of middle importance. And then I go into class and he has included every single note that's on the page. And I'm like, well, then what is this? If it's not the foreground. So that's that my point. True. We went, f- we in that class, which is the basis of my Shankarian knowledge, we had foreground and we had background. And the middle ground seemed to not matter in the slightest. I agree. I think that's just his bias, though. I stand okay, by, I, st- I will stand by the middle ground. Well, I stand by background. I was able to find a background structure in John Adams. So that's quite I a think flex. that that. Well, I think it proves that the background, <laughs> you can find background structures and support them. What kind of line was it in that John Adams one? It was a five line. Okay. In the key of A flat. Right. And how many measures did that five last for? Like 800 or something. Right. Yeah. It was like a, because it was a piece that's like in a rondo form, essentially. Mm-hmm. So an E flat for 800 measures... And then four more pitches with support. And yeah. that's what makes the piece for you? Well, I think that it's more about the process of analyzing it. It doesn't... I was really excited when I found it, but like... Seth, are we talking composition or enjoyment, or what are we talking about? When you say what's more important, do you mean in an analytical sense or in a musical aesthetic enjoyment sense? So... As the defendant, I think you could pick one of those. Well, no, because then we just make about different case. things. Well, I'm going to say that I don't think the Shankarian structure stands out to very many people who don't know about Shankarian structure. So I think we should say from an analysis standpoint, don't you? Mm, all right, fine. Well, I was going to say I'll, I'm all for you defending the middle ground's importance from like a listener or performer's standpoint, but I just don't think that you would think of it in those terms unless you knew about it, at which point. Right. It's an analysis. And so I would just say that from an analytical standpoint, you can find a background structure that explains a lot of things. And I guess we've both agreed that the foreground is the foreground and there's a lot going on there anyway. And it's just, it's what's on the page. You know, you you can certainly analyze it and explain relationships there. But generally speaking, it's not as meaningful as, it doesn't give you kind of this explanation for the entire piece, generally. Right. Whereas a background structure, it gives you this new understanding of like what he's doing. And for me, it was really exciting because it was like, okay, so there's these, he was using minimalist techniques to fill out a traditional five line, which was crazy. Like, whoa, you can do that. But if you looked at the middle ground, the middle ground was sort of blurred because he was using these new techniques. Well, did the minimalist techniques show up in the background? 
Well, no, because I'm talking the background is very much just that. Right. So how many five, songs four, three, two, do you one. think that you've heard that have a five line with harmonic support? A lot. Yeah. How many songs have yeah. you heard that sound like Hallelujah Junction? Uh, Adam's music. <laughs> That's fair. But Some of it, yeah. So where do you think all the things that make it sound like John Adams show up? In the foreground. Mm, really? Uh-huh. I don't know. I think it starts in the middle ground. Okay, what do you think? I'm curious to hear your take. I, I think that, I mean, I, I don't Can you define it. a middle ground for me? What no, do you think of when you, because in, in my head, I literally, there's nothing. I have nothing. I only I, have four I ground. have a conception of it that I believe to be maybe more accurate than what we were taught. That's not to, I, I hate okay. to just keep bringing it back to that class. I think that we were taught, you're right, we only had two layers, basically. The way that which I... Which I understand his reasoning. It's like, let's try and explain every note on the page, which I get, but we weren't really I, taught, but, like, if you took that away, what would be the second most important? We didn't really talk about that. Right. I think that, at least in my understanding of Shankarian analysis, the foreground is more, not quite like ornamental stuff. No, I think that's fair. I, th- I think the middle ground is like the meat on the, well, no, I guess the background is like the meat on the bones. I don't know. Maybe the background is the bones, and the middle ground is the meat, and the foreground is the seasonings. Well, it's kind of like the middle ground. You, I, If I had to define it, I would think maybe a middle ground has the, like, you know how we did those tiers of harmonic analysis? Mm-hmm. It's one of those tiers that happens before... Yes. You know, there's like yeah, there's yeah. harmonies happening in between that support the most background harmony, and I think you could go based off harmony I think more the, easily than you could go based off melody. Yes, I was gonna say harmony. I think that the middle ground is where the piece really starts to come into its own. The background mm-hmm. is like a template. There are thousands of pieces that have a supported five line. The way that yeah. yours shows up in Adams is really unique and really really cool, but that background is very much a template. There's three different ways that you could have it. There's only three different backgrounds. So mm-hmm. if you were to reduce every piece of music to just the background, all the ones that work for Schenker, just all, you know, all the white German mm-hmm. guys. Eight, and five, Adams, and three, yeah. Right, exactly. Like, you can only have three kinds of songs. Mm-hmm. Where it's, they start to deviate and show their differences and show their composition, the uniqueness, and become, the, become into their own is going to happen in the middle ground, in those broader harmonic structures. And I think that's, that's where fair. a lot of I the think... uniqueness lies in the music. I think you've just made a good point for why that would matter to a performer or listener. Mm -hmm. And I get as an analyst, like you're finding unique things that happen in the piece and yeah, that could be in the middle ground, I guess, which I guess I agree. Like I might concede that point, but I guess to me, my mind went to like, when you're looking at pieces you wouldn't expect to be able to analyze linearly, I think the background gets really Mm -hmm. exciting because you realize the whole piece is structured around this thing because you can also within some pieces find these like small occurrences that you could say are in the middle ground like small linear happenings Mm -hmm. but when you find the background that guides the entire piece it's kind of it like opens your eyes to how the piece is structured yeah so i guess it's in two situations i guess if you're already expecting to do a shankier in analysis the middle ground could be really where your analysis gets interesting well, I also think we're looking at it from two very different perspectives where you apply yeah, Shankarian analysis so. to a piece and it worked, and I applied Shankarian analysis to a piece and it didn't work. Because <laughs> I tried to do some, I tried to create lines in like that Shostakovich string quartet I was looking at. 
Mm-hmm. And I was trying to find like harmonic support for linear passages and things like that. And it just wasn't mm-hmm. coming together. It couldn't be done. So then the other things that are happening in that piece were more interesting to me. Um, whereas I can imagine I guess, the excitement of, of the success of discovering uh, an S line where it shouldn't have existed, like in Adams. I guess it's also not, I may be kind of bending the question a little bit. Um, again, I was thinking of applying it in a position where you normally maybe not, may not expect to be able to pull it off. Mm-hmm. But also I think in my head, I went to when you're adapting Shankarian analysis, which bends the question. So maybe, maybe my point is a little bit yeah, I think if you're adapting it to things that don't naturally fit it, then probably the mm-hmm. background is the most important. Yeah, if but you're because like I wasn't doing strict Shankarian, like right. According to Shanker, my harmonies weren't the harmonies that would normally support them. I was finding a new systematic way that suited the repertoire I was looking at, and you know, finding a system that it did follow, but it wasn't strict. If you're talking strict, yeah. I will maybe concede that the middle ground is one of the more important places to understand. I still say I don't know how to do that kind of reduction. Right. But I think if you're taking linear analysis in a more broad sense, I think the background is really fundamental to using mm-hmm. it to explain things broadly. Right. And I think that the the background is just too formulaic and that the pieces take on mm-hmm. their own character once you get into the middle ground. Even if you can't recognize mm-hmm. that it's an Adams piece or exactly what it's what it's going to sound like until you get to the foreground, I think the the character and the shape of the piece begins to develop in the middle ground. Mm-hmm. I buy that. You've sold me. I think we were just making two slightly different points. Right. Yeah. Hmm. But the real question is, what do I, the internet reader, <laughs> believe? Yeah. Well, most of that conversation is probably over your head if you're an internet reader. <laughs> if you're on r slash music theory, you got none of that. Oh, I got all of it, <laughs> and I'm on there. I should stop dunking on them, because eventually somebody's going to share our podcast there, and it's just going to be a bad look for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're sharing our podcast there. We're going to be like, hey, guys, <laughs> you dummies. We've come, come to save you. to us. <laughs> I mean, like, again, you know, topical because it's current times. I feel like our savior is coming while there's a culling going on. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that comment is appropriate while we're doing our music conspiracy theories. Yeah. All right, yeah. so who won? Come on. That's <laughs> Um man, that is I I think the next couple of questions will help clarify, but I think I think I'm going to go with Adam. There we go. That there is a specific character that you can get once you take into effect the middle ground but Livy's point is more where my heart truly lies outside mm. of my internet reader personality no i accept i accept your decision um i was gonna ask your opinion though just because i was curious what you would have like what you were thinking when you asked the question do you think that i've I, made a clear point about our understanding of the middle ground maybe versus the actual understanding of the middle ground i mean clear is that the adjective you would use in <laughs> Do you think I my think description you of the middle ground is more accurate than maybe the one that we used in class? I think you were able to work uh, into a clear <laughs> definition. I, in, in general, where I stand is the background is the bones. But the problem with the background is, like you guys were alluding to, the structure or the skeleton is going to look very similar for 
pieces around the same time related in whatever sense you're looking at. So that's always going to look very similar. If you have too many things, then yeah, of course the foreground, there's too much to really say that you're doing a Shankarian analysis. At that point, you've just done Roman numeral analysis and maybe you're pointing out some linearity in it, but it's not a specific, here's what made this, this. Mm -hmm. Kind of like Adam was alluding to, there's ornamentation and It's not things. very structural. Right. And so uh, the middle ground, if we were going to our meat on the bone analogy, background to me is like the bone. The muscles on the bone are more of that middle ground. And that's where things could, you could have different sized muscles. Some people are going to have bigger quadriceps. Some people are going to have bigger biceps. Some like there could be differences there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that are important to why does this piece sound the way it is and then what's on the top again could be a variety of things you know it could be hairy you could be not hairy those are the two things that came <laughs> my head for right. some reason right. Livy, i have a question and i don't want to i don't want to like be attacking your thesis you know that's not what i'm trying to do <laughs> I, I have a question about like the 800 measures on five that yeah. you mentioned yeah hey wait wait I think in a lot of ways you could get into that with the next question that I have. Can I ask the question first, though? Yeah, sure. Okay. In minimalist music, it would not be surprising to see one primary note supported by a single like, harmony note for 800 mm -hmm. measures. Oh, buddy, mm -hmm. you're like jumping a couple <laughs> questions ahead there. <laughs> I guess my, so my official question would be, does that take away I know it that I know the, the, the Schenker structure does come together in the end. Mm -hmm. But for that first eight hundred measures it's pretty much just a minimalist piece doing minimalist things. Does that take away any value from the background? Well I think I I think this will answer your question. You can stop me if it doesn't. Um the the five and the one weren't surprising at all. Cause like you were saying, it's even if it does move around harmonically, you would expect to hear, you would expect to hear a harmony sustained. Even if there's a little movement, mm -hmm. typically in minimalist music, there's going to be like a kind of core harmony that we come back to and sustain. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Okay. So in this piece, that's kind of this. It's like he's not doing specifically tertian, but there's a lot of A flat and a lot of E flat with um, uh, like third relationships around it up and, and more down, or less kind you of expanding it, it it ends in a new key right like you could tell it ends in like you can tell that it's like this consonant piece. yeah and so the five and the one weren't surprising at all we start mm -hmm. in this sort of a flat e flat for a long time i didn't know which key it was in because he's expanded like down from the right. a flat and up for the e flat but so i didn't know which key it was in it seems to sort of start in the same place that it ends um now in my thesis i define that that is not in fact what happens but um it's really the in-betweens that are crazy and like the the three the c mm -hmm. you would also expect to see because it's in that realm right. of where we started and where we end it's the um the four and the two when i found especially the four when the four happens in my analysis it is like this striking moment that kind of makes adam's music sound like Adams, to me at least, which is that he's um, mixing more strict minimalism 
where the mm-hmm. harmonies are changing very slowly to more expressive gotcha. things. And that's one of those moments that feels really expressive because he takes this, he, he makes this harmonic shift that, you know, by romantic standards or whatever, it's not sudden in the slightest, but by minimalist standards, it feels quite jarring. At least gotcha. it did to me. Mm-hmm. And so are there, are to be able to explain that, um, there's, it, there's like rhythmic okay. and stuff. And um, people have analyzed this in different ways that aren't Shankarian and come to the same conclusion that it's more of a rondo form. Yeah. Um, and that's the B section of the rondo form. My five gotcha. line actually lines up with the forms that other people have established. Gotcha. And okay. so I think that, you know, having that formal analysis supported by a five line mm-hmm. does make it feel like there are significant things happening gotcha. outside of just this one harmony. Like, right. like I was saying, the five, three, and one. I think you could find in a lot of strict minimalist pieces and make a case for it. But the four and the two, because those require some significant harmonic changes for the most part. Gotcha. That was just so, going to be my slightly underhanded attack and just saying that all <laughs> minimalist music holds things for a long time. But, all right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I had, I had all of these concerns when writing my thesis, so yeah, I can I, speak I to them because... <laughs> This is like a a semester's worth of panic. (laughs) All right, guys, that is it for the first half of Let's Argue Music Theory Edition. Uh, We will be back with the second half of our supposed-to-be argument next week, um, where you'll find out the final score and see who won between me and Libby. So thanks for listening, and until then, see you.